Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy folks, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary temporary experts. Experts. Today's topic is cryptocurrency, because it's in the news. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you might have uh, you might have heard uh, of a particular a particular individual, particularly high profile rocket and car guy who um, caused quite the stir in the cryptocurrency market world after an appearance on Saturday Night Live and a few choice tweets and things like that. And every so often, you know, the that this. The cryptocurrency thing, the whole Bitcoin thing or whatever, I think for most, right, you know, most of us regulars, um, <laughs> crypto and Bitcoin are kind of synonymous, right? And it's, yeah, it's just been one of those things that like every so often it just like is in the news and it gets a lot of attention as this like big like money making thing or this big investment opportunity. <laughs> big money making, money losing thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's also often like to like the stock market and stuff like that. And it's very complicated. No one really. And then most lay people, right? Like, like myself, like I don't, I'm not a computer scientist and I don't really understand the underlying technology behind like what makes this so important. So you hear these buzzwords like blockchain and nodes and hash or decentralized, you know, currencies and all these things. And sometimes you don't know what that means from like a science perspective or a computing perspective. And for me, one of the things that has been popping up recently is people talking about the uh, environmental unfriendliness of all of this, which was something that I really couldn't really get my head wrapped around until Davis and I started talking about this whole blockchain idea. So it seemed like it seemed like a non-sciencey thing to start. But the more we talked about it and delved into it, it's like, oh, okay, there's a lot of computer science here and and like environmental biology that can kind of go along with this. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like in the, uh, the way the infrastructure is set up, even in, in, in its own sense and like the way it's affecting kind of other industries and things like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's very much this, um, it's, yeah, it's this piece of technology that has kind of you know, it's entered into the sort of popular sphere and then, you know, people don't really understand exactly what it is. So we thought we would take a look at, at Bitcoin and kind of blockchain technology in general. And so to help me do this, because so I, I kind of, <laughs> I forced Sarah into this topic a little bit uh, because, yeah, I did really want to talk about, we both got a little squirrely thinking about like all the market manipulation implica- implications and sort of the... Um, the group think that sort of goes behind some of these like kind of investment opportunities and all this stuff uh, that we didn't really feel was very, yeah, like, you know, there's science of economics and things like that, but it didn't, we didn't really feel like it fit the bill of something for us to talk about, even though it's, this is something that people don't really understand. But um, my brother, who is a computer science engineer uh, and his, uh, his friend, I, I called them up and I got kind of their lowdown on how this works from a technology standpoint. And my my brother actually gave a really good explanation like last Christmas of kind of how this works. And it was just really interesting of like, it was just a really good explanation. It was like a really good analogy that he gave. And so it helped me understand it a bit more. And I, so I called him up a couple of days ago and got the clarification a little bit. And yeah, so I'm going to do my absolute best, Michael <laughs> and Cooper to, uh, to c- convey what you conveyed to me. But it was one of those like hour and a half long conversations where my my head hurt at the end because <laughs> I was trying to I was trying to type really fast and keep up and think about what was being said. Um, so so Michael and Cooper, if Davis gets something wrong, feel free to correct him on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and yeah, so 
where this kind of all starts, and so what we're hoping to do today in talking about this is help give kind of a better explanation of like what blockchain is, like what this technology is, what it means, why Bitcoin is sort of synonymous with it and cryptocurrencies, and then a little bit into, yeah, like what's happening with crypto kind of in the greater market, why it's getting all of this attention and things like that. And like Sarah said, you know, there's this issue of uh, this growing concern around the environmental aspect of crypto mining and sort of the volatility of it from a market perspective. And so we'll start to talk a little bit about that. But it's really important to kind of understand what these things are in order to really like be informed if you were going to, you know, so I'll try to steer clear of like, I don't want to say like, oh, you should invest in Bitcoin or you shouldn't invest in Bitcoin. Like your investments, anyone's investments, like that's a personal choice, what you choose to do with your money. And like, but I would just say it's one of those things that like, I think a lot of people just see this, you know, it's like buying a stock on the stock market and it's, it's similar. And that's how some people are kind of using it to make money. But it's also like, you know, they're holding it like an asset, like you would hold gold, but it's also, you know, it's this living entity in the way that this blockchain system works. It's like a, you know, from a database perspective and stuff. Yes. <laughs> are, you, are you still with me, Sarah? Have I, I lost you already? No, still here. Lots of new words, um, <laughs> but not to worry, uh, listeners. I will be like you in this episode. I know very little about this topic. Davis is our temporary expert for the week, and he called in actual experts. And then I am here. <laughs> I'm here to learn. <laughs> I'm here to learn and make sure Davis's analogies make sense. Mm-hmm. He's got to test them on me. That's true, yeah. Uh, so, so hopefully Sarah will ask me questions when I'm getting too opaque and... Uh, that'll help with our explanation because this is going to be riddled with analogies. Fortunately, I'm I'm excellent at creating analogies if I toot my own horn, but... Uh, we shall see. Yeah, <laughs> I've also been told that my sayings are always really obscure. So that sort of is the vote. That's the strike against me and my strength in analogies <laughs> is that sometimes they're a bit weird. Sometimes they are a bit weird. Yeah. But yeah, I think Davis and I share that, so... So, so Sarah, like where, what do you, when you think about coming into this, like, cause now I'm, I've sort of quote unquote informed myself, like the loose, (laughs) in the loosest of ways. And so like you coming into this a bit more, um, blank slate, like what is, what do you, what do you know about, what do you think about this whole cryptocurrency thing? Yeah. I guess what's your opinion on the whole thing? Like, you know, sight unseen. So crypto makes me feel a little bit like a Luddite. Okay. Uh, in the sense that I don't know if it's a scam or a new technology I don't understand. It's a new scary thing. We need to go back to the old ways. Right? No steam engines. <laughs> no. Horses only. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm i still torn between those two things. And I think part of the, the problem with this is people have used crypto as a scam. But there's a lot of really smart people backing it. So I think that it can't be a full scam, but it's also, it's, it's everyone like betting on a horse that's not a real horse. It's like a horse that someone's just telling you about. And th- mm. when I started, when you started explaining a bit of blockchain to me, I'm like, okay, so it is a thing. It is a, it is a real thing, but it's just so not tangible to me that it's, it's really hard to understand. And, and the, it's this money essentially, but the value of that money is so volatile. It's hard it's hard to really believe in it, you know? And I mean, that was my main argument against it. And then a couple of weeks ago, you brought up that, well, real money isn't based on anything anymore either. It's not on a gold standard. It's just all 
against each other, so and it's even, all kind of the same. <laughs> and even like technically on the gold standard, right? It was well, you're fixing the price, the you know, the value of the dollar to the value of gold, which is then also in and of itself a commodity that is sort of a set value because of the agreed upon value that it holds. So it's it's valuable <laughs> because we say it's valuable, and that is really what a lot of this comes down to. This it, it's the part for me that I've always been a bit fascinated by is that it's sort of based off the same principle that like all of our money is based off of. The main difference, like kind of off the, not even off the cuff, but like in a single sentence between like a Bitcoin and the value that it is established because we say it has a certain value because certain people are holding it and all these things. And the difference between like the American dollar and things like that, or the Canadian dollar or whatever government is that, you, you know, the crypto is decentralized. So it's, you know, it's not really backed by a singular entity, but there's all these people that sort of have a stake in it. And we'll talk about what that means. Um, whereas like, yeah, with the dollar, it's backed by a government. So there's an element of security because, well, you have this massive organization behind it that like is probably not just going to dissolve overnight. And I mean, you could go into this whole thing about like, well, that's, there's, there's people that have made money in some sketchy ways trading currency because you can sort of bet on the stability of a country by buying and selling their currency and trying to make money oh. as it goes up and down. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very, um, it's on, it's in that gray area of like ethics in terms of, um, you know, yeah, you can make money this way, but you're kind of doing it on the backs of other people, people's fortune or misfortune, really. And it's not like we haven't seen currencies collapse before. Exactly. Right? Like, exactly. if you if you took history in school and you learned about <laughs> Germany just before World War II, right? After World War One, and then the mark, the value drops, so people are bringing wheelbarrows full of marks, which was the, the German money, uh, mm -hmm. to try to buy a loaf of bread and they couldn't because the mark was so worthless. So it's like, same thing happened really... in the Soviet Union in certain years, yeah. right? Where inflation yeah. just runs out of control and the money is not worth anything. There's some fears even today of like, because of coming out of coronavirus with mm -hmm. all this spending and like particularly large groups like the, 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 the U S are producing lots and lots of money right now, just printing more and more money to meet demand that it will cause inflation to rise because the value of the dollar goes down. You know, you, you yeah. push more into circulation, the individual piece is worth less. Yeah. And we've seen the, as the dollars rise and fall and how that affects things. I mean, I remember, oh gosh, a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, the Canadian dollar was doing really well. Mm -hmm. It was really strong. And I had friends who were working in like shoppers, drug marts and stuff and saying that people were coming in and talking to the cashier at a shoppers, but like, well, why should I have to pay this price when the American price is this and the dollars are almost equal, blah, blah, blah. It's like, just as a side note, the cashier can't do anything about that usually, <laughs> so don't just be a nice customer service person. Um, but yeah, like we, we've seen this volatility before. I guess it just it just feels so much more potentially immediate with Bitcoin. So you know maybe we should go back to horses and we'll just go back to a complete barter system and we'll get rid of money. We'll go back all the way to like the original coin, which was just like a giant piece of stone with a hole in it, and you'd have to like roll it from town to town. No coins. And that was that was just sort of the just bartering. It'll be like settlers of Catan everywhere. You just trade in sheep <laughs> and wood and yeah, all it costs to know, build honey. a city is three coal and two wheat. That that's what I know about economics. Um, Nailed it. But that is the interesting thing, right? And, and and that does, it goes more into this side of like, there. there's a lot of mathematics and modeling and there's, you know, population level, um, you know, sociology that goes on in economics. But, you know, we're here to talk about Bitcoin. What's Bitcoin, and Davis? cryptocurrency. Okay. So to understand this story of like blockchain and cryptocurrency and where this, you have to go back to where this story all begins, right? Let's go back. Once upon a time. Mm -hmm. And so basically in 2008, uh, an anonymous individual 
create released Bitcoin and they they're there's often a they, they go under a pseudonym uh, and they're sort of like believed to be Japanese. That's what they sort of claim. But like this person is still anonymous uh, and it's Satoshi Nakamoto. And this person released this Bitcoin on this blockchain. So blockchain was this new technology at the time, which was essentially a database. So when you think of a database, Sarah, like what do you what what springs to mind if uh, I say the word database? A spreadsheet. <laughs> like that's, an Excel spreadsheet. That's fair. That's fair. You know, and an Excel spreadsheet is like, a, yeah, it's a, a type of database, right? A database is anywhere you're storing data, right? And in computing, it's about like, basically, can you create these systems where you're linking all these different data sets together and relating them to one another? So we've been using databases for a long time because it's just a different, it's diff different ways of storing information, linking it together, making it accessible and things like that. So at its very simplest, what blockchain is, is just a type of database and stored in a particular way. So a lot of databases are like a web, right? You've got all these tables that are connected to each other by certain values, and you can kind of cross check the values against each other and say like, okay, well, like I'm, you know, I own a store and I'm selling cats, uh, cat toys. <laughs> There's this like YouTube video example that I was shown at work because I do some work with, I don't work in the databases, but I have to sort of take stuff out of the database and work with a data team to get it into like reporting formats for non-data scientist type people to review, okay. right? So what they're doing essentially is they're getting this information from all these different sources. And then there's parts that link the data together, you know, so like, oh, okay, I can see that, you know, customer A, I assign a random number to, and they buy this object. And then this is like the, you know, the shipping address that they put in and you can track all of these in different tables and then you link it together. And that's sort of what grows your database. And so for a lot of more simple operations, you might not need something more um, more intensive than like an Excel spreadsheet. But you know how even within an Excel spreadsheet, you can kind of open up deeper and deeper sheets, right? You can create a whole workbook mm -hmm. and you can do yeah. some logic back and forth between those. Yeah. Yeah. The analogy that's popping into my brain is like a library. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And a database or like sometimes the word repository, it, a repository is a slightly different thing. It's usually part of a database, but they're, they can, they're often synonymous with each other used interchangeably, even then, even though I'm sure there are data scientists out there that are cringing <laughs> as I say that, but, um, exactly. So it's just, it is it's like a library with a card. So it would be like your card catalog in a library. So to say like, okay, well, I need to find this book. I go through the, now maybe a card catalog is a bit of an ancient <laughs> reference because okay. a lot of people wouldn't know what a card catalog is but these even, days. Even the idea of like, you have a library and it has different sections. Exactly. Right? But if you're, I mean, now everything's online. So you can either go to the library and you can be like, okay, I'm looking for, I don't know, Sandman by yeah. Neil Gaiman. Mm -hmm. So you go to graphic novels and you know that it's there, but then you're like, well, Gaiman also wrote novels. So how do I find that? And then you can go to the computer system and you can look it up and find, okay, well, that that book isn't stored where Sandman is stored. That book is stored over in the fiction, in the like, <clears throat> you know, the, the non-graphic novel side of the fiction. Yeah. And then you'd be like, oh, well, now I want a book on plants because that this is, this sounds like an actual visit I might do to a library. <laughs> and so then you like go back to the computer or you go to nonfiction, you go to biology and you break it down and you like, you keep going through the different layers to find the thing that you need because they're all connected through the library system. And then they might be connected under like smaller headings, like fiction or nonfiction. And then even further to like science, biology, plant biology, 
And you just like keep following your little trail down. Exactly. And this is actually, this is a perfect example actually oh, of, a, of a database <laughs> because, you know, and like in an, in an older library, you would have a card catalog because things wouldn't have been computized and you would, you know, you'd, you'd flip through all the little cards and it would tell you, okay, like, yeah, this is the, you know, this is where in the library and a library is all organized on the Dewey decimal system. And that's what specifies. So it's sort of, that's exactly why it's like, oh, I want to find things by Neil Gaiman. That's why like American Gods is not sitting next to Sandman in the library because they, they're not the same Dewey decimal code the way that the database is organized. Graphic novels have a different code than, you know, like adult fiction does. Same with like YA fiction will have a different code. Nonfiction will have another code. And it'll, and you know, even where your D, the DVDs and the, the CDs that they rent out at a lot of libraries now, they'll all have their own code uh, in the Dewey decimal system. And that is essentially what is linking all of these disparate pieces of data together into your library database, which is is now, of course, searchable on the computer. You just go and you look it up, um, which is essentially, you know, and that's just taking a card catalog and digitizing it. So that's essentially what blockchain is, but it's not, it's not stored in that same way. It's stored in a linear fashion. So you have blocks. So a blockchain, it is quite literally what it says it is. It is a chain of blocks. But all it, like in the computer. In the computer. Okay. In the computer. Yeah. So we are <laughs> in- lander level in the computer. <laughs> What is this? A computer for ants? Um, it's not the right quote, but that's fine. What's the quote about the computer? Oh, right. The files are in the, the computer. The files are in the computer. So it, they're like banging on it, trying to get in the computer, and then they drop my, it. Sorry, spoilers for my, Zoolander. My nerd clout just dropped so hard. I haven't actually watched Zoolander in a little while, but I think I'm going to watch it again soon because, you know, a model's life is precious. Any one of us can die in a freak gasoline fight <laughs> incident at any time. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway so yeah so that's exactly so we're, we're in the computer world we're in the reboot world now as it were oh, goodness. um and so essentially what it is is it, it is it's just these blocks of information that are linked together in a way that makes them immutable so unchangeable mm. and impossible to go back in and like change something in the blockchain without having it affect the outcome of the chain and then it's getting verified by all these people and stuff like that but we'll kind of get into that so like if you have a word document and you put a lot of pictures in it and you tried to move one picture like one <laughs> centimeter and everything gets thrown off that's actually not a, that's actually not a bad analogy for kind of how it works either thank you so so essentially what happened in 2008 when this bitcoin the bitcoin blockchain was sort of released was that blockchain was this new technology and bitcoin was essentially like a a type of application for it so they wrote a white paper on bitcoin like a journal article of a piece of research and the integration of this new technology. And so what Bitcoin is, or what the blocks of information in the chain of Bitcoin is, are it's the ledger of transactions. So like a bank, you know, you look at your bank statement, it says, okay, you use your debit card on this day, you bought this from this location, right? We took this money out. And it's got this whole history. That's essentially what the blockchain of Bitcoin is doing, what they're doing with the bit with the blockchain technology. So you can think about it a little bit that Bitcoin is the application for the technology of blockchain. So this person was sort of saying, you can store data in this way using a blockchain and it has these certain advantages because it's secure and it's immutable. You basically, you can't have someone go back and use a duplicate coin, right? So it's like, Sarah, you buy something from me for one Bitcoin, like I wish. Um, <laughs> and... But then you try to go back into the system and make it look like that transaction. like So that transaction is digitally recorded in mm -hmm. the block. And you try to go back into that block and change it. 
Well, what happens is it basically creates a, a fork in the chain that other people who are verifying these transactions, like in the same way that your bank would verify your transactions, but it's all these individuals doing it. They go, wait a second, that's not right because like it changes these output numbers and we're getting a little bit ahead it's of ourselves It's an alternate here. timeline. Essentially, right? <laughs> and so, and then all these independent verifiers would kind of like reject it. So that was where this sort of, it was a bit of like a proof of concept. So the idea is that you have this block of information and it's like a page in a ledger. So if you think about a physical, you know, actual transaction log, say there's a hundred lines on the piece of paper, right? So you can fit a hundred transactions on this piece of paper. You and I are miners or whatever, we're, and we're verifying the chain. So we're running this program and we're verifying all these transactions. This final transaction will happen. You'll hit the limit of transactions or information within the block and the block will close itself off. And then what it'll do is it'll run this information through what's called like a hash. And the hash is an algorithm that encrypts this piece of information. So the way that it was kind of explained to me uh, when I was talking to my brother and his friend, Michael, was that you, it's basically imagine if you had a book, you know, a whole novel, where it's the entire contents of the novel, but just in like a single string of characters or whatever. And you then took based on an algorithm or a certain, you know, encryption, you took all the number, you took a certain selection of letters from each page and you sort of strung them all together. You would get a, you know, a random output, but it would be deterministic based on the algorithm. So what that means is you're always getting the same output with the same input, but any change to the input will give you a different output. So like any change at all. So essentially you've got all, all these transactions, they close themselves off, you run the whole thing through a, this algorithm, you get a hash number out and that gets stamped to the bottom of the page and a new block is started. That block is connected to the first block by taking that same number. It's just a string of characters, letters, whatever it might be based off of a specific type of code. Um, so in Bitcoin, they call it SHA-256, so S-H-A, and it's just a secure hashing algorithm. That's what it stands for. And 256, and this part I'm gonna not quite speak to correctly, it's either, it's kind of like bits, right? The bits of information, the ones and the zeros. So it's how many different characters, It's it makes a chain of I think 64 characters, which represent 256 bits of information, right? And just to kind of go over it quick, a bit is generally the most simple part of the computer, it's the one or the zero, the, the simplest part of the computing information. Okay. So to do all of the characters in the like English language, and I think all the numbers as well of zero to 10, or, um, Zero to, Zero to nine, yeah, thank you, <laughs> is um, basically it takes 60, it takes four bits of information to do that, right? Because a one or a zero is just a yes or a no. So you can basically, it, it gets very complicated, but it's how you're kind of connect, connecting the chain of like, okay, so like zero, 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 one might be this particular character in the computer and that, and so on and on and on, right? And so that's, it basically creates all these independent pieces of information and it's, you know, it's very difficult. So, it works as an encryption technology because now you have this string of code that is tied to this specific ledger. It cannot be changed. And if you make, if you tried to make any change to the ledger, your number is gonna be different. And then all these people who are out there verifying the number, right? The numbers are public. And then sort of saying, oh, okay, well, I'm gonna check that this particular block is still like this code. And you could go back and you could identify the specific block from the hash code, but 
if you had made a change and tried to say, oh, it's like, oh, well, I didn't really pay Davis a Bitcoin. He paid me a Bitcoin and I, I'm stealing from him. Ha 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 ha. You know, <laughs> but that everybody else who's verifying the chain would go, no, that is an in that's a false transaction file. You've tried to kind of duplicate your coin or that's not what the actual transaction was. Okay. Let me try to explain this yeah. back to you and see if I get <laughs> this is, it. That's so funny because this is exactly <laughs> what I had to do on the call the other day. Was I had to explain it back to them every time. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how you figure out if you understand something, right? Is like, can I explain this? Because mm -hmm. if I can put it in words, then I might get it. So, okay, so we have our, our ledger, right? So we have our page of information. Yeah. And once it fills up, it goes through the algorithm, which gives us the shot, the, the number. The code. The code. Yeah, the number, the code, whatever, the string of characters. So would this be like... If I had a page of a book or like a page of a journal, and once I fill up the page of the journal, I laminate it and I laminate it in like a blue lamination. And then someone else came along and wanted to change a thing on it. And then when, and then when they went to laminate it, they laminated it with a yellow. So it came out green or That's... something like that. Like, so, so someone looking at it would be like, well, this is all the same information or it, it looks like it might be the same information, but it's a different color. So it's not the same thing with the, the color of the lamination being akin to the code kind of pretty pretty close so it, it, i would have likened it a little like to like a stamp right you ever see those stamp those older school stamps where you could like change the date oh, on them older school those are great i know they're they're super <laughs> cool they're super you cool ink all over your hands but it's fine <laughs> yeah so you can change the date on it right and so it would imagine if it would be like you have this stamp that you turn the numbers to based on the numbers that are in the ledger and so any change so maybe it'd be like maybe there are you know six dials on your little stamp and if you, and based on the, and you know, maybe they have all these digits on them and based on, you know, the first letter of the first paragraph, the second letter of the second paragraph, the third letter of the third paragraph or whatever algorithm you're choosing, your selection criteria, you are turning the dials to specific things based on that and you're stamping the document. Any change to any element of that document would mean you would turn your dial slightly differently okay. and you would stamp with a different number. And then, yeah, it, but the lamination thing is a good analogy because, yes, it's it's going into this permanent record. So it's not like, so you might, it, it would be like if you then tried to say, you tried to forge the ledger, someone stamped it, well, the first stamp is still there, mm -hmm. right? And so they would look at it and they go, well, wait a second. Like, I can't stamp this. I mean, assuming you could stamp it again, but like just sort of they would, you know, if someone went to audit it later, they would be like, well, wait a second. These two don't line up. So this is like a fraudulent, you know, a fraudulent um, ledger or whatever. Okay. And be, this is important because the, those stamps, it would be like if you took the same combination of numbers that you stamped the first page with, and then you stamped the top of the next page with that number, and those two pages are now linked together. This is how they get chained. Mm. So any change to the number of one of the blocks that spit out at the end, like, so, you know, you change a transaction, you get a different hash number. Well, now it's not associated with the chain and you have a break in the chain and that, and you have all of these people who they're with their computers, they are verifying the transactions and verifying these numbers. And basically they can go like, well, no, that's not right. You know, so something's, something's gone wrong here. I, I keep thinking, <laughs> I keep thinking of, uh, and Rick and Morty. The timeline guys? Mm. Are... <laughs> yeah, the time people or whatever. I don't remember what they're called. Yeah. I don't know. They're really gross looking. Uh, yeah. But yeah, if there if there's a break in the timeline, then they come in and they usually beat people up so that they stop messing <laughs> with the timeline. But uh, yeah, that sort of idea. Like there's someone monitoring the timeline, as it were, timeline being the blockchain. And if there's a split in it, they go, no, 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 no. That, that reality is impossible. And they take it out. They say, yeah. It's a lie. 
Yeah, exactly. So it's just a way of so from the from the purposes of using Bitcoin as a physical currency, well, not physical currency, but as as a real currency to buy things. That's sort of what this is why the the why what makes blockchain novel for this application, or like because it's it, the record is immutable, mm -hmm. and then you are decentralizing it because you have all these different people who are mining and and checking transactions basically. To confirm that they're true. So the way that it was kind of explained to me the other day was like, if you, Sarah, went and walked to, you know, the 7-Eleven across the street and you bought yourself, I don't know, a taquito with a Bitcoin, the $30,000 taquito, <laughs> I guess. And, it, and it's also important to note that like a Bitcoin or a, uh, a block in Bitcoin is being processed at something like every 10 minutes, a new one is sort of being created. And so in the time that it would take you to go like, from making that purchase with the Bitcoin, now the transaction is noted in the ledger, you would try to go home and then maybe you would try to say like, oh, well, maybe I'm going to try to edit that code or whatever and make it seem like I didn't spend that Bitcoin and now I've gotten my $30,000 taquito for free. Basically, it's impossible to do that, right? Like okay. it, would, it, it would be so difficult to get in and, and change that before the block is completed. And then now it's sort of immutable and it exists forever. So it's right. like way harder than making counterfeit regular money. It, exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's like you can't just mint a fake Bitcoin because a Bitcoin is specifically tied to the blockchain and a part in the blockchain. And these numbers that are very difficult to basically, you know, you're, you're talking about so many different combinations of letters and numbers in this code, this hash code, that it's impossible for the computer. Like it'd be very difficult for your computer to guess perfectly. You know what I mean? Yeah, but this yeah. is part of this is almost where we, you go into the mining aspect is that your computer is trying to basically guess these numbers in, in, in a certain sense, but we will get there. Um, okay, I think I'm with you. So let's keep going. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so, so basically, and just to reiterate, right? So with Bitcoin itself, right? And we'll talk a little bit about some of the other ones as we get through this explanation, but basically it's a ledger of transactions. The block of information is a ledger of transactions. There's a certain limit of how many pieces of information you can have in a block. When that limit is reached, the block is closed. It's run through an algorithm, which spits out an encryption code of a certain length of string, just a string of numbers and letters. And so then you have this piece of code, it gets stamped to the bottom of the block essentially. And then the new block header is stamped with this same code that links these two blocks together in the chain. This new, this new block starts being filled up, gets closed in the same way, and you keep linking, right? You can't make changes to previous parts of the block because it would be too computationally complex and it's being verified all the time by all these other people. So what is this, so what is the deal with like crypto mining? Right. And so that's where this sort of the whole because that's the other big buzzword that you'll hear. Right. You've got these miners and then there is there's all this controversy around. Well, all the miners are buying all of the GPUs and, you know, they're building bots to buy hundreds of them and no one else can get them. And that's not what they're really intended for. And they're running these huge farms. They're consuming the electricity of small nations and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we brought this up in the uh, I think in our space junk episode. We started talking mm -hmm. about yeah, rare materials or rare minerals and mm -hmm. uh, people. Yeah, buying up all the things and how you can tell there's a Bitcoin farmer in the same way you used to be able to tell if there was a grow up. Right. Because the, the power usage. And, and yeah. the, the snow <laughs> on the roofs melting and stuff yeah. like that in Canada is, is what used to be the indicator. Yeah, exactly. So, so basically what's happening is in order to decentralize this currency, to have all of these people with an interest in it, you have to give them basically a financial incentive. Yeah. So, you know, in the same way that your bank will sometimes charge you like a transaction fee. Right. Yes. Yeah. So it's this there's something similar for Bitcoin. Right. So at one point when Bitcoin was really young, 
it was something like if you wanted to, I don't know the actual numbers, but the analogy that was I was given was like, if you wanted to send $70 in Bitcoin, right, whether that's one Bitcoin at the time or, you know, 0.005 of a Bitcoin, whatever it is, I want to send you, Sarah, $70 in Bitcoin. It might cost me $40 in Bitcoin of, in processing fees, just because it's like, there's only so many people on the nodes, on the network and using it and stuff like that. And just, it, you know, the transaction fees are quite variable and can get quite high. But what happens is, is that so you and I are miners and we're independently got these operations going where we have all these computers set up or a computer set up to run a Bitcoin mining operation and it's verifying transactions in the block, right? If you get that last transaction in the block, you get to close that block and you might get awarded like a Bitcoin or a part of a Bitcoin or whatever it, the value of it is now. So, so just for... Just for agreeing to do the the mining, which again I'm I'm stuck in Zoolander again now because we're <laughs> mining. Um, oh jeez, <laughs> very distracting imagery. Uh, sorry everyone, but so you have these people who are mining it, so they basically have their computers running the code. What are they doing? Yeah. So what's what's <laughs> actually happening is like so the transaction part of it is a small aspect of yeah. what they're doing, but it's not really the part of it that's like, well, I want to mine a Bitcoin. You would you know you get because it, you have to kind of do both of these things. You have to approve a certain number of transactions. That's not hard. Computationally, it's just like a, a, you know, a match and check kind of thing, right? So your computer can do that with fairly little computing time. But you have to do certain number of transactions. And then you also have to generate a new, a new block. So basically, what's happening is that the, the block header is a code that includes the hash of the previous block which is that code that's spit out by the algorithm and also a bunch of other numbers, right? You know, because it's like, I think the hash is like 32 characters or something. And then it's, there's space for 64, but you have to sort of, you have to, so basically what we'll do, the algorithm will do is it will set a, um, like a threshold and it'll say, you have to spit a number out that is less than this. And the, the, the closing of the hash, the closing of the block, the hash number is known. Again, it's just public knowledge. But then you, what, what you're doing when you're mining is you are basically also creating a selection criteria for your computer to say, okay, select, you know, take the hash, add these numbers to the end of it based on this sort of algorithm or like, you know, this brute force technique basically. So it's just like go, you know, it'd be like if you were trying to get break into someone's garage and you're like, okay, we'll try 001. Okay, we'll try 002. And you would just go over and over and over again. And and it, it's this brute force technology. So then that's like what they call it in computing. You're just trying to do it by, you know, going through all the possible combinations as you get one to hit. And what a lot of people will do is they'll have specific algorithms written that select how they're selecting random numbers. So you're not always going just from like, okay, well, the lowest possibility to the highest possibility. So it's, so they're code breaking essentially, but they're just code breaking in a way of like, we don't really have any... Or we, we might have some technique, but it's a lot of just like try all the things until something works. Yeah. And then, okay, going back a step, a Bitcoin. Yeah. Is a Bitcoin like a page of this ledger? Is it like one sheet? Like what is a Bitcoin? So a, a Bitcoin <laughs> is very much in the same way that like, well, what is a dollar bill, right? A dollar bill is just like a physical representation of a certain amount of stake, right? And like, yeah. so that's but, a but it's still a thing. So like, what is the thing yeah. that is Bitcoin? So the thing that is Bitcoin is like the piece of code that is, I, so I don't think it's the specific hash that's attached to the bottom of the page or anything, but it is associated with that specific hash. So it is associated with like a block in the chain. Now, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins in circulation. And the rate at which they're rewarded is like halved every 10 years or something. So, you know, if, uh, 
12, 13 years ago when Bitcoin was invented, if completing a block and then guessing the, the hash of the new block within this, this threshold awarded you a Bitcoin, well, now it awards you like, like half a Bitcoin or less. So the more you're mining and the longer these things go on, both because there's a change in sort of the probability of guessing, but also because the, over time, fewer Bitcoins are being awarded. It's a logarithmic growth. So the last Bitcoin is said, it's it said that it'll be awarded in like 2140. Right. So it's still over 100 years away, potentially, but it's because you're, you're giving out less and less and less. So technically, your mining operation would have to grow and grow and grow. So you can liken it to real mining. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, because, yeah, you run out of resources and you got to dig deeper. Yeah. Or, right. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you open a gold mine vein and, you know, you, you discover it and it's easy to, you know, maybe it's an easy to discover a vein and you start mining it. And then as time goes on, you have to go deeper and deeper. You have to keep looking for new veins of gold. You know that there's probably some in the environment because there was some there to begin with, but eventually you're going to potentially dry that entire area out of gold, right? And if Bitcoin, if, if Bitcoin is, let's just say like this string of numbers, right? Like it's a code, then there's only so many possible combinations within that code. Is it just like when there are, you've run out of the combinations of like say it's a code of like seven numbers you've gone through all of the combinations of seven numbers is that how it works like how are there only 21 was 21,000 21 million 21 million how are there ever. only 21 million well so there are not 21 million in circulation yet there only ever will be 21 million and I think it's the number that was set by the person so this is the part I'm not 100% sure okay, on but okay. I'm pretty sure it's the number that was set by the creator and why like can't it's just that arbitrary. be changed is that like in the very first block um I think it's just one of those things where it's because it's decentralized. So no one, and so this is part of this thing about what makes sort of Bitcoin or a block, sorry, a blockchain different from like a normal database is that a database you could push an update to yeah. and you could re, you know, you could have it restructure and update and, you know, you could change something within the database without having it break the whole database. But if you want to change something in the very first block of the blockchain, you change the entire chain yeah. and it just can't be done. So it's immutable for time. Okay. So yeah. that was just a thing that the first person was like, this is what it is, and somehow put it into the first, or the early of the blocks. It's like the code of the algorithm that dictates how bitcoins are awarded. <laughs> okay. Right. It's really challenging because essentially it's code it, of the algorithm. Well, yeah. So it's like yeah. basically it's yeah. just it's just the way that it was written to award bitcoins to people that are verifying application, verifying these transactions, and creating new blocks. And so it's it, it's just the way that it's award, rewarded. So it would be in the code essentially of like, okay, you every time this happens, you reward one. Every time this is completed, you make it this much more difficult to guess the next number correctly. And then you reduce the amount of Bitcoin that is rewarded on this sort of time scale. And it's it's done, I think, partly because you want to be able, because if, if it were infinitely possible to generate Bitcoins, eventually... Yeah, you would have these people set up basically entire homes of supercomputers, which is essentially what people are doing. <laughs> and they'd be mining so much Bitcoin and trying to create so much that eventually the value would just disappear. Yeah, you'd have inflation all over again. Exactly. So yeah. it's a scarcity technique, really. And I yeah. think it is. It's just sort of this, it's just the way it was decided upon. And that's why like Bitcoin is this kind of proof of concept. And yes, there are plans, like the creators of Bitcoin like maintain it and they have plans for how this currency is going to work. But it's not, it, there's things about it that can't be changed because of the way it was set up, as, as I understand it. And I might be misspeaking a little bit on certain aspects of this, because um, what this isn't, wasn't really actually one of the questions that I asked my, <laughs> my brother and Michael of like what the specific coin, like what it means. But I know that it's yeah. linked to the chain and okay. it's sort of like, and that's what makes them sort of specific. Um, I think that part might make a bit more sense when we talk about the NFT, because like <laughs> that's more, 
into that is more connected it's supposed to be connected to a quote-unquote physical object a digital mm -hmm. physical object right and I, we'll, I have other opinions on nfts but we'll get there <laughs> exactly, exactly and that's what's so interesting about the whole nft conversation yeah. um but anyway okay so we were talking about we've got miners mining blockchain or mining bitcoin mm -hmm. using through blockchain with blockchain <laughs> so they're building the blockchain. They're building and, the blockchain. And building the blockchain is what is sort of awarding you Bitcoin. Okay. And it, like digging deeper. Essentially. Okay. Essentially. Adding pieces to this ledger. And it caught it, it takes a certain amount of computing power to do that. So it's essentially like what you're doing is you're giving these miners a puzzle for the computer <laughs> to solve. Because basically what's happening is okay. you are attaching what's called like a nonce, which is just a string of characters randomly selected to the end of the hash. And you're running it through the same algorithm to try to spit out that hash number. That's going to be the header on the next page. And if you guess right on your nonce, you get the right code. And if you guess wrong on your nonce, you get the wrong code. Exactly. So green light, red light situation. More and, and more so that it's like, imagine like a higher or lower, like you're trying to get oh. below a certain number this threshold that's being set by the, you know, by the algorithm. And if you are, yeah, if your selection criteria picks a nonce that spits out a hash number that fulfills this certain criteria, so maybe it has to have, you know, it maybe it has to have four zeros in a row, right? Then the next time it might have to have five zeros in a row, which is going to be, you know, another to the to power of two more or to the power of 10 more difficult, depending on how many digits you're choosing from, right? Gotcha. So it's and, like, like an ever increasing in difficulty Higher or lower on the price is right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that was the thing too. When I talked about this with my brother, like I used, uh, for me to explain it back to them, I used a lot of like gambling um, analogies, right? Yeah, really. So you can think about it almost like with the mining operation, it's like, it's almost like a roulette wheel. That, that keeps getting bigger. Yeah. And okay. that where you're not losing your money every time, right? So having more computers running different random nonces at the same time is essentially like putting more dollars down on the roulette wheel you know, and covering more of the numbers of a roulette wheel. So every time it spins, you have a better chance of landing it. And then what happens is it's like you have all these people essentially in competition with each other to guess these numbers. But you're just running these computations over and over and over again to try to generate these numbers. And, and because, again, any change to the input is resulting in a distinct and vastly different output that's not really related in any way. To, like it can't really be traced back to that original change in the input. It's just a new random code. That is sort of like, that's what's sort of difficult about it. And that's why you have to run this, this query or this not query. That's, well, that's the bad word if you're going to talk about databases, but <laughs> it's the, because a query is something that, you know, you yeah, query, query a database. Thing, yeah. yeah. But it's, that is essentially that you run this basically guess every single time and if you get lucky so to speak and the art and you know again now we're talking about like on um, you know computing minutes and things like that so thousands of decisions and you know your the computers can do these things very fast mm -hmm. but you have to do it over and over and over again to basically have a probability of completing this and and winning being awarded the bitcoin or the part of the bitcoin and then a percentage of the transaction fees that apply to that block yeah and then once someone like gets a Bitcoin, they mine one in quotes or quotation marks, then that affects everyone else trying to mine because it changes the numbers. Is there like one stream of, of blockchain for Bitcoin or is it like, does it kind of branch out? Is it just one single chain? It's a single chain. It's okay. a single chronological chain. As I understand that, that's what a blockchain means. Okay. So if I am mining and you're mining, we're mining separately and we're both like trying to work on getting the next one and I get it, then you're 
Like all of your computing power has to kind of, it has to adjust and take that into account and then move forward from there. Well, exactly. So like okay. you would, so you would create the new candidate block, the new one on the chain that's empty. It would start getting filled. I would continue to verify transactions because that's one half of what you kind of have to do to earn the Bitcoin. You would as well. That's the easy part. And then, but what would happen is that, yeah, I would continue running more of these nonces, but I would be working off of now the new hash from the block that you created. Okay. Right. So it's like, so your hash is filled. Now there's a new code and you just start over again. And it is, it's just like, so basically it'd be like every 10 minutes. Well, now you're not checking off of this, the first code from before it's a new block and you're trying to get to the, you're trying to generate the next one, but it's just from a computing standpoint, it's not really that complex. It's just like, well, you take, basically you're changing the half of the number that's known. You're still using the same maybe guessing technique and then you're still trying to hit a particular threshold and it's a bit of a it's an element of luck right it really is just brute force eh? it is it's absolutely <laughs> brute force and so and just a bit of an aside about like the brute force thing so brute force again is this term used in computation to basically mean that if you were trying to and i know i kind of already said this but it's like if, if you were trying to guess a password you would be just trying every single combination that is possible. Yeah. You could do that in a linear way. You could go, you know, 0001, 0002, on and on. Yeah. Or you could basically have like, okay, well, just pick these random ones and then pick these ran these other random ones. And yeah. you go over and over and over again. There's, I know the whole like, you know, Dan Brown, I, I like his writing because it's very, um, you know, it's engaging. It's they're good little yeah. like pulp books and things like that. They're I was fun. The Da Vinci Code went through it really fast. Remember very little, but I remember being very engaged with this like short little chapters and like, yeah, mystery. exactly. He's it's a he's a very engaging writer, and you have to take some of his science stuff with a little bit of yeah. grain, big grain of salt, <laughs> right? But one of his older novels, Source Code, is about the NSA's basically like the civilian monitoring system that like was basically exposed by Edward Snowden, yeah. and basically the NSA's supercomputer that was decrypting people's emails to try to read their emails to understand who who was potentially a threat to the U.S. and stuff like that. Right. So obviously the novel is very fictionalized, but this technology does really exist. And in fact, if I remember correctly, blockchain is sort of like one of these technologies that was or no, I think SHA-256 was something that was developed by the NSA because they're very heavily involved in, in data security and things like that. Anywhere we think we are in technology, the military and government is always like. 10 years ahead, they just don't let us know. Well, that's actually like, that's true of all <laughs> technology true, yeah. is that, yeah, certain military technologies are almost always, they're integrating technologies that the, that that we will have supposedly in 10 years. Like the touchscreen is the famous example. I think the case study that's sometimes used is that the touchscreen was being utilized in certain like high tech and specifically military applications 10 years before we started seeing kind of like smartphones with, with touchscreens. That's why the technology gets integrated commercially so quickly. Cause it's yeah. like, oh, well we know that this is pot. It's not like, oh, we just figured out this is possible and now we're putting it in all the smartphones. It's like, <laughs> no, we knew this was possible for a while and we've been using it since very fancy ways where it's yeah. where we got lots of money to throw out problems. Yeah. And now we figured out a way to make it cheap and, and yeah. sustainable and blah, blah, and commercial. And we've realized we can control it enough or it's safe enough. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. we have tangent away. Mm -hmm. So we've got people mining. They're using this brute force method, which is you can use pure linear brute force of like, like if you're doing a, uh, a word search and you're looking for oh, a word, yeah, you, you can go like, line by line, you go yeah. line by line, starting left to right at the top yeah. corner the whole way. Or you can be like, all right, I'm just going to kind of like scan and like, this one has two M's, so we're just going to scan loosely and look for M's. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So and that's just all. So like different miners will use different protocol and things like that to try to get this done. And so this is sort of where with 
that specific, like, this is what's called proof of work, right? So you are doing work to verify the transactions that are being made with Bitcoin and then create new parts of the blockchain and you're being awarded for that proof of work. That's essentially what the Bitcoin is. Um, are there is, really that many transactions with Bitcoin? I'm not 100% sure, <laughs> okay. but all I under, as I understand it is that a block is created every 10 minutes. So I don't know if that means that there's an X number of transactions happening with Bitcoin every 10 minutes, or if it just means that these transactions are being verified in such a way that a new okay. code is being created every 10, a uh, new block is being created every 10 minutes. Okay. And so this is where this, the conversation has steered towards the concerns around energy consumption, right? So you've got a single computer running computation. You can actually do a calculation to figure out like how many kilowatt hours am I using every time I do this operation that costs, you know, maybe it costs 10 seconds of computing time, which is this much energy, which, you know, based on the type of graphics card that I have or whatever, the, you know, my machine is running off of and based on the energy cost in my area, that's how much electricity I'm using. But now you've got this spread out over a whole network, all of these people that are doing the same thing, kind of verifying and verifying all of this stuff. And just quickly like that verification, that's why it's so hard to defraud, like to, you know, create, to split a coin and made it, make it look like you spent it twice and all these things. Cause you've got all these people around the world verifying all these transactions all the time. And they're gonna very quickly discover discrepancies uh, and not allow your changes to be made or like your things to go through, right? That seems like a pretty solid safety system for and, now while there's enough people doing it. Yeah and, yeah, and it has all to do with how this encryption works and stuff like that. And that's this whole point behind decentralizing it. So that, so that not, there's no one single person who can like turn off the tap or make these crazy decisions about the coin and things like that and how it's going to work so so anyway so you have so now you've got this network of people that are all mining and then as it gets more computationally you know as it gets more like less likely that with a single cycle of computation you're going to magically guess this number you have to increase your odds right and then and then as time goes on you're getting less bitcoin every time you guess right anyway mm -hmm. so you have to continually basically expand your operation to even be making the same amount of money because you're not just getting awarded a bitcoin either is one of the big things here you're also getting this percentage of the transaction fees which you know if it's forty dollars a transaction Action. that could be a lot of money or like you know it doesn't matter it's the same sort of things where it's like classic bank robbery uh, cliches of like you steal a single tenth of a cent from every atm transaction that's made at this bank and like in a month it means you'll earn like a hundred thousand dollars because there's so many transactions but they'll never notice that amount of money going missing unless they like really audit it i got that from some terrible b b bank robbery movie nice that was the plot um <laughs> So, so anyway, like, well, it's what credit card companies currently do, especially yeah. with like, or if like some places don't accept Am or Amex, 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 yeah. American Express. Yes. Am Amex. <laughs> I don't oh my know. God. Wow. Uh, I don't use this card, uh, but they don't accept it because they have notoriously high uh, fees. Yeah. So the business isn't going to take them on because it's not the number of purchases they get with Amex. That's used. Yeah. With Amex are... Uh, they don't offset the cost it like the cost to the company the, yeah. the business especially small business to like use amex yeah exactly and so uh so yeah so basically it's more and more people are are running the same applications right so now you're talking about all this computing power and you know, it's basically, again, it's like, you know, the more times you can run this cycle, the more parts of the roulette wheel or the more chances you have essentially at winning this money. And now it's, there's estimates out there that say like, 
you know, it's predicted that the entire Bitcoin network is using more energy than a lot of like small, medium sized countries, like using more than the entire energy. Like we're talking about in the terawatt range and Terra is like 10 to the 12. Wow. Right. So, you know, and the, again, so it's on the order of countries and it's spread out over all of this area and stuff like that. And then obviously most of our electricity is still generated through the burning of fossil fuels. But there's some there's no real way of telling like how much because a lot apparently a lot of the Bitcoin mining is at least partially um and especially because the type of people that are running these operations are often very technically savvy um, and kind of big on the tech, the, whatever tech things are big. They a lot of it is runoff of renewables and even to the point where a lot of electrical gets, grids throughout the world are at least partially runoff renewables now. Yes, that makes sense because their energy bill would be absurd. If they're trying to run all this, so they might as well set up some solar panels and try to offset your cost where you can. Exactly, exactly. And that's the thing, right? It's this it's this law, almost the law of diminishing returns, right? Where if you, <laughs> you're, you can create this massive setup, but every time you're adding a machine, you're adding cost. And if you're not actually getting more Bitcoin or if the Bitcoins aren't really as valuable as they are at a particular time, right? You know, yeah. right now, Bitcoin is extremely valuable. But if tomorrow, for whatever, for whatever reason, everyone decided, well, we're not going to use Bitcoin anymore and everyone sold it or whatever and the value dropped, well, then now you've got this massive operation that potentially is not making you any money anymore or it can't cover the costs like you said so you yeah. do you want to offset these costs so that's part of it but the and the solution quote unquote to this problem is to move from proof of work which is this original application of blockchain to proof of stake which is a different application and the idea with a proof of stake is rather than you and i needing to mine and generate the new candidate blocks Right. So running these this very taxing computation, it's simple, but it's you got to do it so many times yeah. and, it, and you know, it costs a certain amount of computing time rather than doing this brute force method. What's happening is that you and I hold a certain number of coins as individuals and we put them in basically like a frozen account. And that is our stake in the coin. And then every time a new block is generated, we have a percentage chance of being awarded that block in and the, those transaction fees that result from that block. Okay, so it keeps it in the same, like, just luck world? Yes. Mm-hmm. It keeps it again in that, in that luck sort of world. Again, that sort of example of like a roulette wheel. It's the same idea. The more coins you have, the more coins you're putting on the board, the more numbers you're covering. Yeah. And then would this be, I guess they would have to centralize the running of the blocks. That's I'm probably not, not the way you say it. But. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure how the blocks are generated. I think it's still done in a decentralized way, but it's just that you and I are not like competing to guess the number for this next block to be awarded a coin. So we don't have to run these massive farms to try to do it. There are not basically any coin that runs off proof of stake there it's sort of the newer concept there aren't really any major coins there's no real telling if bitcoin will try to move to proof of stake because it's not as simple as just again you can't just push an update you can't put a yeah. bitcoin 2.0 you know because it's this chain that's immutable you you have to you have to like like get everyone on board basically and yeah, if everyone is yeah. invested so much in building these setups then they're probably not going to be very likely to want to change off of it if they have something that's working for them Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just, and it's very complicated and there's the potential for all these things, right? So you've got this proof of stake and that's sort of like the future option, so to speak. And so the coins that are using it now are sometimes called alt coins and they're pr proof of stake models. Alt, so, like A-L-T? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like alternative music. And uh, <laughs> alternative oh, that's what music it means. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, so 
So there aren't really that many altcoins out there, but this is sort of the whole thing that this is all kind of based off of, or like this is potentially one of the areas where this can go. So there aren't very many that are using point of stake right now, but we got to talk a little bit about some of the cryptocurrencies outside of Bitcoin, yeah. right? So the reason, again, this is why Bitcoin is so synonymous with this whole blockchain thing is because it's the first one. It's the yeah. proof of concept. But the in the 2016s, 2017s, when the when Bitcoin had its first major peak and it became this really big thing that you know nobody understood but you could make all this money off of but you didn't know if you were gonna make money off of and it's never Bitcoin is basically you know year over year never really done anything other than go up but there's no reason to expect that it will continue to do that and every once in a while it goes down dramatically yeah (laughs) Um, Michael put this really well where he sort of said something like if if you you could be said to be smart if you didn't invest in bitcoin in you know at any point in time since it was since it was invented but you're also you're also not a hundred thousand dollars richer or whatever yeah. he kind of said <laughs> i paraphrased a little bit there but like it, ascend, it, yeah it really is gambling right like and more so i feel than regular stocks yeah and so there are thousands of coins out there now yeah. and that's where you get like i'm sure you've heard of this like the doge coin or whatever doge, and they yeah. call them kind of like meme coins and stuff like yeah. that so doge coin is literally i think the creators were university students that created it, it as a project yeah, for doge. and it was something of a joke and it kind of took off and then it's basically gotten its life of its own. Yeah, and that's exactly that's why it's Doge because of the yeah. meme. And it basically just took off on its own. And they don't have any plans to do anything with Doge. But for a brief moment, it had this moment in the sun and everyone yeah. was buying it and holding on to it. Well, didn't Elon Musk talk about it? That's what caused all this value to disappear. Because basically right. he went on SNL and partly explained, you know, what a blockchain <laughs> was. I think I, I haven't seen it myself, to be to be honest. But basically tried to explain it. And a lot, I think a lot of people just went like, oh, shit. it's a, or, And he basically went on air and said that. Well, Dogecoin is a joke. Well, yeah, the, call, if, you know, in the bit, the person was like, "So, I don't think they said like, if so it's a it's scam like a or weekend a hoax or something." Bit, yeah, and the and he was like, "No," and he kept trying to explain it, and then eventually he like was like, "Yeah, that's what it is." Yeah, and then everyone was like, "Huh," and they yeah. sold it. <laughs> and it was, and it was something like thirty million dollars in value disappeared basically overnight, yeah. or in like in within the hour of this having happened, right? And so this is where the to do the aside a little bit about the economics of it is this is where like basically. People are not using these things in the way, like they're not, you, yes, there are certain places and areas you can make purchases with Bitcoin, but it's not like you're walking around and tapping your Bitcoin credit card at the grocery store yet. You know what I mean? I did see ads for crypto credit cards. Yeah, well, exactly. They're on them. There are, crypto, <laughs> there are crypto credit cards and there are places where you can do, I've even seen ATMs where you can do crypto transactions or like wow. you can take your Bitcoins out as cash or whatever it might be. But again, it's this... It, a lot of people are just holding it as a commodity in the yeah. same way that like we were talking about in that last podcast, right? You hold gold because it's just, we've decided it has value. And depending on the way the markets are moving, sometimes people put more money in commodities because they think it's safer than trading on the open market kind of thing, right? So that's what's happening with a lot of these coins from an economic standpoint. And then they're, the thing is, is that they're not really as prone to market manipulation as they as as it has seemed to be in the last little bit. But it's just that like, the particular cult of personality that surrounds Elon Musk and the amount, you know, and basically what he, you know, that he speaks to this audience that is in tune, you know, or is like interested in this side of technology and and future tech applications and things like that. And that they kind of like, he just, his, his sphere of influence is so large that he can create, you know, huge change at almost basically a population level. 
and again, he's speaking directly to the people who are interested in, in these things, right? You know, other influential people could go out and start talking about Bitcoin, but their audiences might not be people who are owning lots of different coins, these cryptocurrencies. And people really trust Elon Musk in this way. Like they look at him and they go, he's the smart, he's smart. And he is like, he's the people's billionaire, which is dumb. That's <laughs> not a thing. That's not how it works. But anyway, uh, so I think they they look at that and they go, oh, well, he knows what he's doing and I should listen to his advice and I maybe don't really understand what's going on, but if he gets it, then I'll just listen to him. Mm -hmm. And especially with something like crypto where there have been, because people don't understand it and because it's got this like get rich quick aspect to it, there really have, people have used this as big scams. Like one of the big ones, I think it was 2017, I think it was called OneCoin and it was huge. It like, it took off and it had investors in like, it was over 150 countries and it had offices everywhere. And then like the, and it was like, what was it? It was mil hundreds of millions at least, if not billions invested into this. And then like on the day that they were supposed to be able to, they supposed to like take real value, the the, per the founder disappeared. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> so and it's like, if you have someone you think you can trust with this, you're probably going to trust them. Even though, man, it's just like, there's the, this, this term in, in stocks and stuff like, I don't know if they say like FUD, but F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And it's something in any stock, uh, any like, right? Like the fear of trading on the open market. It's why people went into the housing market and then the housing market undermined itself when it crashed. <laughs> but this whole idea of like that fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And because people, we don't understand what Bitcoin is and we don't understand how it can be used. We don't understand how it relates to the real dollar. We are much more likely to trust someone we perceive as being smarter than us and more capable than us and just like kind of follow their lead, which is dangerous and makes it makes it it makes the value seem a lot more volatile compared mm -hmm. to like regular money. Yeah, exactly. And we, you know, you or I could go and buy a Bitcoin right now and yeah. no well, maybe not a whole <laughs> Bitcoin. We could buy part of a Bitcoin and like or any coin. That's the other thing is if you move away from Bitcoin, you can talk about some of these other coins that are worth like, you know, pennies or whatever. And you can buy these coins and you just, and you hold them in the same way that you hold the stock. You like and I don't Pokemon have to set cards. up. Well, exactly. You and I don't <laughs> have to set up a mining operation to kind of get into this game. So a lot of people that don't understand the computing side of it, they don't, you don't need to see the computing side of it. You just need to be, well, I can hold this asset. And if I, you know, from a market perspective think, well, this asset is going to increase in value because people are going to continue to say that it's more valuable well then i'm going to keep holding it it's a little bit of like it, it comes down even to like with collectibles of normal types right like why are you know beanie babies is the classic example <laughs> i was just thinking beanie babies <laughs> well, exactly right and the reason why beanie babies are not really worth as much as they were always like touted to be and that was their whole marketing scheme yeah was that because they were marketed as collectibles people collected them and protected them yeah. and bought lots of the bought lots of them and they produced a lot of them exactly so there's no real scarcity or value right so even why certain um this is really true like comic books are a good example mm -hmm. like where or um certain actually or certain promo type things mm -hmm. right if you release a promo as like well this is this collectible card or whatever right well a lot of people hold on to buy those or find them keep them and keep them you know in good condition and protected a lot of the things that become really collectible are these weird things that no one ever thought to collect yeah but if you have like a perfectly mint condition of this thing 
well, that's rare because no one thought they were going to be this big deal, right? You, you know, even like the classic, like the classic example of the OG Star Wars toy that's still in the box, right? Well, if you bought one the first year Star Wars came out, yeah, Star Wars was a huge deal when it came out. It was a cultural, cultural phenomenon, but you don't necessarily think to yourself, well, in 50 years, we're still going to be obsessed with Star Wars <laughs> and this toy in, a, in the box is going to be worth, if I keep it in perfect shape and, you know, me, 12-year-old boy, never touch it or whatever, right? Like, you know, you're, you just can't think that way. Yeah. But again, versus like, oh, come to McDonald's and get your one-time only collectible Pokemon tin or whatever. And your limited edition. Exactly. Well, everyone collects them and then they're not yeah. worth anything. I, uh, with with Beanie Babies, I had Beanie Babies, but I played with them. Mm. And like, I had little tag protectors, but they always fall off and whatever. But I had a friend who, her mom legit, there was like one of the rooms in their house. It had shelves around like three of the four walls and like probably three floating shelves high. And there were Beanie Babies on each one, like with their little tags on and their little protective things. And I was like, you're not allowed to play with these? <laughs> but I was like, I guess they'll be worth something one day. And then... Everyone did the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> And there are a few Beanie Babies out there that are really rare yeah. and are worth a lot. And even, in fact, this is the other thing, just to talk about collectibles, because this is not really about Bitcoin or... But or, Bitcoin is a collectible. In a, in a sense. sense. <laughs> but, like, even some, like, for example, like, the rarest records, yeah. um, vinyl records, are often ones where there are... It's, it's unique album arts that were only yeah. released in certain um, jurisdictions or areas or ones with errors on them, yeah. with specific types of errors because they're rare, but they might have had a thousand in circulation that all have this same error and then they fixed it when they reprinted or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you have one with the error or the specific type of um, album art, it's worth more. So it's not even really about like, oh, well, this album is rare. It's like, no, this version of this album yeah. is rare. Yeah. And even I'm... to the point where the country it was released in is rare. Yeah, I was uh, watching a show about, it's called Worn on Netflix, and it's about clothing. It's what I was talking about. She has a coat that she bought, I got a sample sale or something. Um, so it wasn't that expensive then, but when the collection came out for this designer, they released this coat, I think in like black and navy, but the sample was in white. So this is like literally like a one of a kind item compared to all of like how it ended up being released. and Manufactured be, and stuff. Yeah, which would be limited still, but not that rare mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly so to go back to kind of like the coin thing so so bitcoin again it's this first one it was this sort of proof of concept of how blockchain worked but it's it's really only scratching the surface of like what blockchain can do because basically what happened in the 2016 2017 when bitcoin had this big explosion um whereas there was a number of papers that came out that kind of showed that what was being done with Bitcoin could be done in other database coding languages like SQL, which we've had for a long time. And that's why this technology of blockchain itself has not really taken off in other areas is because like, well, you're not going to do it this newfangled expensive way, which also has its own drawbacks um, when you can hire a SQL programmer who's been doing it for 10 years and knows the environment and everything's already set up that way. Right, and SQL is, again, it's just another type of database. Um, and it's not like a blockchain where blockchain is chronologically linear. Does that mean that, so if not all, if not all cryptocurrencies are built on blockchains. Or they're not, what more so is that they're all built on blockchains, but they're not, what is in the block is not always the same. So it doesn't always have to be just a list of transactions like a bank ledger. So a big common one is Ethereum. And it's, this is one of these coins that basically rather than transactions or anything, you, think you can still have transactions in the block, but you can also put other things in it. So you can have, they call it like a smart contract in the code. And so basically it's like you and I could enter into agreement, you know, I agree to buy Sarah's car for this amount of money. We could write a smart contract for it. 
And then we could seal that in a piece of the blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain. And basically, if we ever, I don't know, went to court over it for whatever reason or whatever, you could go back to that contract. And rather than saying like, okay, well, now we have to have like a, you know, a notary signer agreement or we have to go to the registry and all these things. I mean, we would slap because it would be a car. But, you know, we could just go and say, well, this is the contract. And you could pull it back up through the blockchain and say the database essentially and say, this is exactly the contract. If there was, if, if Sarah tried to go in and sneak a change in after we'd already signed it, it would change the chain and that that would go on that would not be verified so you wouldn't be able to make those changes would that be only for like if i sold you my car and you bought it with ethereum or no anything? so with anything you, so you just, like, it's just a contract and then, you, and then you just put it in you, you can put almost any type of code into this this Whoa. is kind of how it was explained to me okay. and so this is where some of this application starts to expand so um cooper gave this kind of example of he's heard of like where people have designed like a virtual universe, basically with planets and stuff like that in it. And you can buy a literal stake in the virtual world, like a plot of land on a planet or one of the planets in this virtual universe. And the contract for the ownership of that is written into the Ethereum blockchain. And so now you own this, own air quotations, this piece of virtual real estate essentially, and it is immutable, right? Like the, the history of you owning it is written in this sort of unchangeable code, essentially. And then obviously within the smart contract, there's probably other things that tie it to this application or whatever. And But then it's sort of like, well, if I want to sell my planet to Sarah, we could write another smart contract that would sort of then specify that or whatever, right? So it's this way of like basically owning something digital in a way that it cannot be removed right so it's not like oh i've got a save file on my computer but if sarah hacks me and steals my save file she now owns my planet i i i've i've committed to this analogy so we're stuck with it <laughs> i like it um stealing planets exactly right it, it would be like well no like this you have this piece of like you are connected to the blockchain like i have ownership through this database that is always going to say i have ownership it's not a, just a free-floating piece of like it's not, you know you ever see that sometimes in like cartoons or like you know, sitcoms or shows where it's like, I've stolen the deed. And that means like, I own the, the land yeah. now, right? It's like, you can't just steal the piece of paper because it's connected to the whole chain. Could you just delete the whole chain? Yeah, but it's not centralized, right? So okay. there's no like, you can't go in and just like wipe one hard drive and then the whole thing disappears because you've got all these independent verifiers and stuff like that. At least as far, that's as far as I understand so you it. You can't from just fight club it. Yeah, okay. you, you can, as I understand, like delete parts of a blockchain and this is sort of, but I think this goes more into the NFT thing. So an Ethereum is connected to the NFTs because that's essentially okay. what you can mint an NFT through Ethereum. And it's the same idea. It's okay. this smart contract. I was, I was thinking, I was like, is this what NFTs are? In, in a sense, right? Okay. So before we go into the NFTs, okay. just I want to talk about one specific interesting thing about Ethereum is because you could publish anything in the code. It, it was this new application, or it's another type of application for blockchain, but it also opens you up to certain types of vulnerabilities. So there's a famous story with, oh, and then this is this whole debate with these cryptocurrencies around this, like the centralization of it and, and stuff like that, is that when Ethereum was in their sort of investment stage and they were launching Ethereum, they, they gathered like $150 million in investments to sort of start this blockchain. And $50 million of it was stolen because as they were building the database, as they were building the chain, they made an error and they had a vulnerability in their code. But because of the way the code is written, there's no real way to go and change it. So and because it's public, their mistake was public. So someone was able to take advantage of it and steal this money. Now, in most coins, in almost all coins, there's 
it just because you finish a blockchain, like we were talking about earlier, you generate that code, um, the proof of work, and you get a Bitcoin, you often have to hold that Bitcoin for a number of cycles mm -hmm. before you're allowed to spend it. That makes sense. Exactly. Because it allows the, the ledgers to go through far enough that now you can't go and spend that coin and like double copy it or do all these things, right? And so you have to hold it for a certain amount of time. So what happened was this person stole the $50 million because of the way their code was written, they couldn't spend that $50 million for 28 days. So the, the creators of Ethereum had a choice to make. Either they could do nothing and sort of hold by the tenants of this blockchain and not make any changes to it and allow this person to get away with the money or, and what they ultimately ended up doing was going to their stakeholders and saying, this is what happened. We can get you your money back, but we have to make a change to the code mm -hmm. and it's going to fork the blockchain and it's going to create a new blockchain and anyone who, so it, uh, I was reading on the internet today and a good example I was given, it would be like if your computer gave you a, an update, it said you can update to, you know, windows 10 point billion, but if you don't do it in the next 24 hours, your computer will be unable to update to new versions of windows 1.1 billion. And so if you updated to it, you'd now be on the new fork and you would be on this, the, you know, the, the new chain. It, of, of updates. If you didn't, you could only kind of go with some of these old updates to the chain. And it, that's basically what happened is it created this fork in the Ethereum. So now there's Ethereum and like Ethereum classic, because basically what their stakeholders said, so they basically had everyone vote on it. And the stakeholders said, well, it's such a large amount of money that we think you should go and fix the code and then and, and create this branch essentially, because it's exactly that same thing is you've gone back into the ledger, you've made a change. Now your new number is different because your input changed. Yeah. And, and now you've, you've branched the chain and going back to a certain point, you can't like resolve beyond that kind of thing. Okay. So that's sort of one of these things that happened with Ethereum. But the, what makes Ethereum interesting again, is that it's not, whereas Bitcoin was this proof of concept and it was just a ledger of transactions, Ethereum was specifically written as like an application. So you could store code inside of this. It's kind of neat. Yeah, it is. It is, it's really neat. And this is why it's like, we're only still scratching the surface potentially of what we could do with blockchain. We just don't even really know all the ways we could apply this technology. One of the, one of the kind of questions I asked was like to, to my brother and Michael was like, well, if you, you could essentially create a blockchain that is the repository of all human knowledge and it would then protect some of those pieces of knowledge from being, you know, being censored or changed because no one could go into the chain and make any changes to them. It would break the chain. And then people would, and people would not verify it. We're not running applications like that yet, but it's possibility. And even to the point where uh, Cooper gave an example of a talk he went to where the guy got like super off topic. He was talking about blockchain and he started talking about like his speculations for like a hundred years from now. He could, you know, you could imagine that you could have an entire decentralized country in blockchain. And basically what that would mean would be in the blockchain would be like all of the tenants of that government and, you know, the tax principles and all these things for the country. And then you from anywhere could buy into that and basically sign into it as a citizen of this country by, you know, signing a blockchain or whatever, a, uh, you know, smart contract or whatever it might be and being put on the chain. And then it wouldn't matter where you lived. You would live oh by gosh. the principles and stuff like that. But it, it feels too, like, possible. Well, exactly. The funny thing was, like, Michael kind of <laughs> laughed at this example because he was like, well, this is why I don't like to get too into this because, like, why he tries to not avoid it. But, like, this is the, you know, he's like, you can get so speculative. Yeah. And how much is it within the realm of possibility, which with or, like, it's like, yes, theoretically, the technology could do that. Would it work? 
the way that you're, you know, you can speculate, you have no idea. It's, I don't know. With, yeah. with the way the corporations have more power than governments right now, it's, it makes me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and this is essentially like, this is what's happening with these NFTs. So the NFT is the non-fungible token. And so you might have heard, so I'm sure you've, Sarah, you've probably heard about them, right? It a just, little bit. It just all sounds fake. Like even the word fungible, first off, <laughs> sounds like a fake word. Uh, and then, yeah, you hear about it. And here, let, let me give my, my mm, understanding mm-hmm. of NFTs. Yes, so please. you sell someone something that's not a thing and that you don't own, but now they own it, but they don't really own it. Like you, I could say, Davis, I'm going to sell you the Mona. I'm going to sell you an NFT of the Mona Lisa. You do not own the Mona Lisa. It might be a picture of the Mona Lisa. You do not own the picture. You own code that says you own it, but you don't actually own any. You just own the code, which only has value insofar as we put on it, which is, again, like with everything, only has value insofar as we put on it. But this is literally just like, I have a line of code now. It's not the painting. It's not even a picture of the painting. It's a line of code that says... I own a picture of the painting because you didn't have the right to sell me the actual painting, just this picture that you took, kind of. it's It seems like a scam. So, <laughs> NFTs don't <laughs> seem real. They're very not tangible. Well, they are. That's that's a big part of it. That's one of the big problems is there. It's not a tangible thing. It's not like I go and buy this piece of art and now it's in my house. And I mean, obviously, even with the risks that come along with that of like, well, what if someone steals it or if there's a fire or something like that, yeah. that asset is lost. But yeah, there's no fungible. There, no fungible. <laughs> no there's, tangible. There's no, t- <laughs> there's no tangible piece here. But what it is essentially is that you are, and again, we're in the digital sphere. So it's like you have a digital piece of artwork. So maybe it was created digitally to begin with, or it's like you've scanned a piece of artwork in to the digital record. And then what you do is you mint an NFT, which you're right, is this piece of code that is essentially linked to the piece of digital artwork. And then that is stored in the blockchain forever. Right. So it's essentially like saying I've got painting a and I scan it and then I hold it, you know, I mint an NFT that puts it in the blockchain and then I can auction or sell that NFT. And so now, yeah, you get to kind of say like, well, I own the NFT to this piece of artwork and in the blockchain, it like specifically connects back to this artwork. Right. And that's like my proof of ownership essentially. And I have this piece of digital, I own the piece of digital artwork or whatever, but yeah, you, you know, um, I don't know if it means you own the rights necessarily, but you essentially own this connection to it. But what happens a lot is that like, well, you're not, some of these contracts are written in such a way where you're not actually owning the specific artwork. You're, you're connected to the hosting site where the artwork is stored. Like it's like on DeviantArt or whatever. Right. And if so, if DeviantArt was ever disappear one day, well, now your token doesn't connect to anything right? Or the, whatever hosting site is being used. The analogy I used back to them to explain it would be like, if I sold you the non-fungible token to this podcast and then, right. But it was more connected to, but it was connected to the red circle RSS page that our podcast is hosted on. But, you know, say red circle were to disappear in 10 years and we were to have to move to a different hosting service or whatever it might be. Well, if your token is connected to the hosting service and like associated with that, well, now you don't actually have anything connecting you to where the podcast actually is. So that's one of the dangers of it is it's not, it is, there's no tangible aspect of it and you have to be very kind of careful of it. But why these, this thing sort of really took off was it was this novel thing and it was a way for artists to make money off of their art very easily. Right. And like in, you know, and in a way that, you know, 
it was just like not automatic in a sense, but like in a much more digital way and much less of like, oh, I need to sell you this painting. It's like, no, I can sell you like, and you you can print multiple tokens for an individual piece, right? So it's almost like you ever buy a print and it, yeah. uh, written on the print, it'll say like, a, you know, a good, a good print, like a real, a high quality print will be out of a series generally mm-hmm. of an artwork. And so it'll say, you know, oh, okay, this is, you know, painting 96 out of 100 in the, or print 96 out of 100 in the series of prints of this picture. And then artists will do that to both preserve the value of the original picture and to preserve the value of the prints. Now, you've got stuff like the Mona Lisa, which they're just going to generate infinite number of prints of the Mona Lisa because it's owned by a museum. No one can own the Mona Lisa. And... You know, so there's no real sense in saying like, oh, well, if there's 10 billion prints of the Mona Lisa out there, the Mona Lisa is less valuable. It doesn't really change anything, right? So essentially that's where this, this what it's become, you know, what why it's become such a big deal is because it was this way to make money and to sell things that already existed. Yeah, you know? that, that was the thing that always caught me is like, is it be, because the things already existed, but you don't actually own the thing that as it exists, you, it always feels like it's like you own a promise of the thing, right? It's like, um, yeah, mm, yeah. Mm, and, like a promissory note almost, right? Yeah, it's like, I owe you one painting, maybe, I don't know. Uh, so that's, that's where I get really like iffy with it. I have heard, and the way that it makes the most sense to me to use these is people saying like, okay, if you buy this NFT, it's essentially, it's a, it's like a ticket. So it's like, you can buy an NFT uh, that's a, like a ticket to a conference and only people who have these NFTs can come to the conference. So you can, if you want to like go the first year and then you sell your NFT the next year, then you can't go to the conference, but the next person can, but it's directly connected to a real world experience as opposed to a good. And that mm. makes more sense to me, like using them as like tickets, like tokens for rides, essentially, as opposed to for this like material good, because you don't really own the material good, especially when they're digital, right? And I know like, like you said, like paintings can catch on fire and they can be destroyed in the same way that something digital can be erased. But I think just the, the, (laughs) I'm a very, I'm a very tangible person. So the whole idea of like, I own this thing kind of on the internet in, in this and being like, oh, but someone, they can steal it, but they, they can't steal because it's in your NFT that it's yours because it's in the blockchain but they can steal it or erase it still. So it, it feels like a like a false security mm. in a way. The way I kind of look at it is it's a little bit like versus like where Bitcoin and some of the other coins like Ethereum and stuff like that, the idea was to create a decentralized currency that you could spend anywhere. Uh, with the NFT, it's more of like a collector item, right? And so that's the think the person that it appeals to in some of these ways. And that's why it's become such a this big thing of like, well, the NFT auction of certain artworks or certain, you know, um, connected to certain digital repositories of information about like, you know, sports players or whatever, right? Like, because you, you know, you're selling it essentially to people that have an interest in, oh, well, I want to own a piece of, you know, maybe you're really, maybe there's a particular like, I don't know, YouTube creator or something like that, or, you know, digital video. And it's like, well, I want to own a piece of that digital video or digital art, or I want to have a stake in it. So I'm going to pay some money to basically own that. You know what I mean? Like, it's like people that buy like anything, right? Any collector's item, really. It's like, it has to be it's a classic thing when you, if you ever do any resale business of like, oh, I'm going to go to the thrift store and find, or like antiquing, I'm going to go find things that are more valuable than they're being listed for and resell them. Or like, oh, this thing is worth $10,000 at auction. It's like, well, that's always on the right day to the right person who wants it. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's it's the market creating its own value. It's like the market forcing value on these objects, saying like, we want them to be worth this much. Or it's right back to where we were talking about with the Beanie Babies, right? Where it's like, you just because you're saying it's valuable as a collectible doesn't mean that there's someone out there who wants to buy it at its collector value. Yeah. Whereas there's wacky shit out there that people will buy at its collector <laughs> value or these absurd amounts of money. Or the classic example, right, is like, well, the Banksy piece of artwork that he said, if you auction this off, it will be destroyed. They auctioned it off. It, it was worth, you know, we auctioned for millions and tens of millions of dollars. He stayed true to his word and it shredded itself magically in front of everyone's eyes. And then it ended up being worth three times as much afterwards because, well, it's just a because someone wants to own it because of the story. Yeah. Right? Someone has an interest in owning it. They don't really care that it's now a, a bunch of scraps of paper in a in a glass box. That's the artwork now and the story of it being created. And to own the only one is valuable to some people. And there's someone out there with a buttload of money who is did I say buttload or boatload? You said buttload. <laughs> yeah, just like a boatload of money, buttload of money that's willing to spend it on something like that, wants to own it. And yeah. it's the same thing with the NFT. Okay. That's how I would liken it. You know, it's like that collector's item, you know. Yeah. Yeah, This it's making more sense. I still, I still don't trust NFTs. I'm still wary about things like Bitcoin, but I am, I'm... I'm not like really far behind in technology, but I'm not on, I'm not near the front of it either. I kind of just like exist as much as I need it, mm. <laughs> you know? So I think this is, this isn't my sphere. I understand why it's getting popular, but I think there is such high potential for people to be scammed because people don't understand this. Because most of us don't understand like how our smartphones work. But we all have them. And so then we we get kind of, we get into this technology. We think we need it. And we see everyone else doing it. And we are so susceptible to groupthink that we just go, oh, you're doing it. It must be valuable. Oh, you, this favorite creator that I follow. Yeah, especially like the YouTube creators got really into this. It's like my favorite YouTube creator says that I can have the, like own this thing for this amount of money. So I do because I want to be connected to that creator and their work. But But the value is so amorphous. Like the value of anything. But the thing in this case is completely digital you know and i think i think you're right like a lot of people get way more squirrely with with things that are digital rather than when you can hold something in your hand when you own a real asset it's different and i think this the big takeaway from this really is that like with cryptocurrencies and stuff is like you said it is it's very speculative you know yes bitcoin it's been around for this time it's anonymous it's the big one everyone knows it so bitcoin is fairly quote unquote stable the price changes a lot but it's going up a lot and that's why and there's no telling that that will continue but that's again this whole thing but there's so many coins out there and there's no telling if any of them are ever going to become profitable and there's evidence that some of them are straight up scams potentially yeah exactly <laughs> like, there has, like historically there like that with that one coin it was straight up a scam mm -hmm. and so there's, yeah, there's all this risk involved. And that's why it's like, it's a really fascinating area in technology because like we're only potentially scratching the surface of what's possible with blockchain and things like that. But it's, it is, it's like, it's a, it's an area you should be very wary of getting into if, if you're not like, if you want to invest in Bitcoin, by all means do it. An area to be wary of getting deep into. Or getting into without kind of trying to come to a certain level of understanding of exactly what you're buying into, yeah, right? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's one of those FOMO things, right? You yeah. want to buy into the hype. You, you don't want to miss the train and, you know, ride the rocket to the moon and make a million dollars. But if you just buy on, there's no telling that that rocket's not going to end up straight in the ground. Yeah. 
right? So you kind of, it's <laughs> like, like with any type of training, you have to be very careful about, you know, what your risk tolerance is. And you have to understand that there's an element of this that, that has like extreme risk and that there's a classic saying in stock market investing that is, if you're going to put any money in the stock market, like from a day trading perspective, you know, and not into like bonds or mutual funds or things that have a bit more security, if you're going to sit there and day trade, any money that you put into a portfolio to do that, it needs to be as though if if I were to give you that money physically, you would be have to be able to, you have to think about it like putting that money in a brown paper bag and throwing it out the window. Yeah. <laughs> because as soon as it's invested, as soon as it's out there, there's no telling what will happen to it. Yeah. Right. And like people do this because of this interest of, well, maybe I can make a million dollars really easily. The thing I would liken this to the, the analogy that I kind of had in my mind the whole time when I was talking to my brother and, and Michael and sort of what I really think, I think encapsulates where this technology is. I liken it to this classic case study in sciences of the laser. So the laser is, I think, have you ever seen it come up in like a science textbook or whatever? No, uh, you have told me this story. Okay, I tell <laughs> this story a lot. this story. I do really like this story <laughs> because it's a classic in science. With science and technology, there's, there's basically an arms race. It's this back and forth between technology and theory. And sometimes theory moves forward before technology catches up. So we describe the possibility of something like think of quantum computing. Yeah. We know that quantum mechanics work certain ways and that we should feasibly be able to create a computer that works. We've known that for a few decades now, but we're only just now inventing computers that actually make use of this. Well, right? there's a, an example of this with Darwin. There was a, he found a flower, the star orchid, mm -hmm. and he went, it has a, it has a really long, uh, I forget what it's called, like a nectar tube, basically. Mm -hmm. And he he hypothesized there must be a moth with a really, really long proboscis, like their tongue, that can reach down into this tube. Otherwise, this flower wouldn't exist. But they never found the moth. And they didn't find the moth until it was like 50 years later or something. Yeah. And they found the moth. And it's the, oh, it's the Madagascar star orchid and the... Hawk moth, I think. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> so I, I uh, researched this recently. Uh, yeah. So then they discovered the moth, and mm -hmm. they were, but they hypothesized they knew it was going to exist. They just hadn't found it yet. So it's mm -hmm. the same thing with this like technology. We can hypothesize this is. We're pretty sure this is possible, but we haven't figured out how to do it yet. Yeah, and and the laser sort of the opposite is where it's like some, you know, I, I forget the guy who invented the laser and I should really learn it because I tell the story a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but basically he, you know, we, you, we kind of, he had this theory that you could do this with light and he created a laser. He, you know, a light, a, you know, it's, I can't remember the acronym either, but it's basically, you know, like a strong stream of light of a single, um, this is single spectrum. And he invented the laser and he was like, look at how cool this thing is. And everybody sort of went, okay, great. I didn't know you could do that with light. That's pretty cool. What do you do with it? And he went, I don't know, but you can do this. It's really cool, isn't it? And and everyone was like, okay, well, great. And the thing was, is that like, we hadn't even imagined that you could do this with light and then what it could be useful for. So there weren't all these technological applications where it was like, oh my God, like I've been waiting for the laser. I can't, you know, like, oh my God, I've, been, I've had CDs sitting around forever. And like, all you needed to do was invent the laser, man. And now, now we can use CDs instead. It was like, well, rather now we have the laser and it turns out you can use it to be like, oh, well, you can scan things at the grocery store really fast because you can scan barcodes. Oh, you can use them for automatic doors. Oh, you can start shooting missiles out of the sky with lasers, right? Like the technology was invented. Them to sharks. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it's like the, the technology for lasers was invented before there were applications for it. And then the applications for the laser proliferated 
massively and yeah. very excitedly because now all of a sudden you could do all these crazy things with lasers just by virtue of them existing. Yeah. But where we are with Bitcoin now is sort of like it's halfway between this like look at this cool technology and you can do stuff with it. <laughs> and people are going like, oh, you can? But what do we do with it? <laughs> and it's like, but you but you could do stuff with it. It's like, okay, but what do we do with it? Yeah. And then there's a and then so then, you know, okay, well, I'm gonna write this paper and say, okay, well, you could use it to make a, a coin. You could make a decentralized currency with it. And then the market kind of takes it in its own direction. So the interest of coin of blockchain being used in this way for decentralized currency sort of runs away on itself. But the underlying principle of like, well, what could we use blockchain to do? you know, we're, we're outside, we're not looking, you know, we're not, um, there's so much more that we could potentially do with this technology, but the market has really, and, or this aspect of it has really captured imaginations because like, well, it's a way to get rich quick, essentially. Classic humans. Oh yeah. Who doesn't want to <laughs> earn a passive income, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so, Hopefully that wasn't too opaque, Sarah. No, I think I understand it a lot better than I did when I sat down. So that's good. I hope our listeners, I hope you guys do too. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing. Like it's, it's new technology first off and it's, it's complicated. Uh, and it, it's not tangible. It's not something you can see or touch or in any way. Right. Like if you, if you don't have this, I have no understanding of computer science. So to come at this, I was like, what are we doing? But yeah, I, I think I get it more. Thank you, Davis. Our, <laughs> I'm amazing. I, <laughs> all of our analogies to get us to get us through that. Mm -hmm. It's just such an important way to talk about things. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Thanks, yeah. Davis. Ah, you're welcome. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully my explanation makes sense. Hopefully, Cooper and Michael, I didn't make uh, too many mistakes. And uh, if you did, reach out to us on Twitter <laughs> at Temporary Expert and uh, let us know. What Abs we got wrong or absolutely. better analogies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come at us with your analogies. Everybody, hit me up with your various Bitcoin analogies or analogies on our analogies. Oh. Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll put a poll. What was your favorite analogy from this episode? Uh, <laughs> be a long list. But yeah, so um, I think that wraps up this topic pretty well. Uh, I don't think there's too much else to talk about. I mean, you could go into the whole market manipulation thing, but it really, it's the same thing as any type of market manipulation on the stock market. Yeah. And it's all these same things. So, um, but hopefully you've a bit of, uh, I know I understand blockchain way better even now than I did from before. Like yeah. this explanation on top of my brother's explanation at Christmas, like I have a much greater understanding of the technology itself and these kind of these buzzwords you hear that come up all the time. So yeah. Yeah, uh, we'll wrap it up there. So what are we talking about next week, Sarah? Well, you know, we talk about a lot about computers, you know, and sometimes computers have problems, right? They have bugs. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, to be fair, that was the segue that I had thought of before yes. as well. <laughs> I told Davis I had a bunch of uh, half-baked bug jokes because our next episode is on bugs. And that mm -hmm. was the half-baked one that came out. Yeah, yeah. So I got my topic this week because uh, I felt like we had to dive into the crypto world. It's just, it, it, it's too, it's too interesting. It's too opaque. It comes up so often, it's but too uh, in the news. it's too in the news, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so, so next week we're going in or next uh, episode, we'll be going into something that I chose, which is bugs, but literal ones because it's yes. springtime and recently went camping and there's bugs everywhere. So I thought we'd take a bit of a dive and, you know, learn about some bugs that are around us. Awesome. Well, I uh, hope you guys tune in for that one. And uh, yeah, hit us up on uh, Twitter at Temporary Expert. 
and let us know your your thoughts, your corrections, your what topics you might want to see covered in the future. If you own an NFT, what is yeah, it? yeah, Bitcoin exactly. Or anything? I'd be very curious to to hear about like people that own them, or what in what maybe influenced you to buy an NFT, or you know those people that are trading coin, or even if you're a miner, that I, I'd be super fascinated by that. We didn't really talk too much about the shortage of of cards, you know, graphics cards that are being. But we got used. into that in the in our last space one. So. That's true. That is true. So go listen to that one. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so. For all of us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. He's Davis Leong. And we have been your Temporary Temporary Experts. Experts. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 